0: My mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. 40 days. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert, 40 days of Lent. You can see why this is a traditional first Sunday of Lent text. 40 days, 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter, if you don't count Sundays. So what are we supposed to do with those 40 days? You may have grown up in a tradition that emphasized giving up something for Lent, a practice rooted in fasting as modeled by Jesus in this story. Indeed, historically, many Christians fasted all day during the 40 days of Lent, eating only one meal a day at sundown, like Muslims do during Ramadan. In fact, some Christians still practice a fast like that. You may have also heard or experienced the practice of taking up a particular practice as a Lenten spiritual discipline on which to feast. Feasting and fasting. Personally, I've engaged in both practices during Lent, giving something up, taking something up, and I found great meaning in both. But I've also experienced that it can be easy to turn a practice either of fasting or of feasting into a sort of simple self-help challenge that has little or no spiritual depth. Which is not to say that there's anything wrong with self-help, right? We could all benefit at times from caring more for our embodied selves or from seeking to reset habits that don't serve our best selves. But I don't think that's the fullness of what Lent calls us to. So in a way, that's the question that I want to explore today. What is the spirituality that's at the heart of this 40-day season of Lent? And what can the temptation of Jesus in the desert teach us about how to practice our spirituality faithfully during Lent and throughout our lives? So our story starts with the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the desert where he fasted. He had nothing, we're told, for 40 days— So the text says that he was famished, and that seems like it must have been kind of an understatement. 40 days without food, that is a lot of time without food. Any person would be in critically poor health after 40 days without food. And in the midst of this, the devil, however you understand that to mean, comes to Jesus with a simple challenge. You're hungry. You don't have to be. You need food. You could have food. If you're the God-born one, the solution is simple. Just turn this stone into a loaf of bread, and you could eat as much of it as you want Commentators on this text have long pointed out that this first temptation echoes the exodus story of manna from heaven, and at the same time foreshadows the miracle of the loaves and fishes that will occur later in Jesus's ministry— Remember the Exodus story where the Israelites have been freed from slavery and oppression in Egypt only to find themselves lost and starving in the desert. So after grumbling to Moses that they would have frankly rather had stayed slaves in Egypt where at least they had good meals to eat, the Israelites one day awakened to find the ground covered in a miraculously delicious food. And so in the desert prompting the starving Jesus, tempting him to turn a stone into bread. It's almost like the devil is taunting him with a story. You know, God could bring food to your ancestors in a desert, a desert just like this one. If you're the God-born one, surely you can do the same. And, of course, Jesus could do the same on a much larger scale, Just a few chapters later in Luke's gospel, in another deserted place, Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish and turns them into a meal for 5,000 or more people, a meal plentiful enough to have 12 baskets of leftovers. So why can't, or why won't Jesus turn this stone into bread as he is languishing, starving in the desert? Perhaps the answer lies in the difference between what the devil is challenging him to do and the miracles in Luke and Exodus. In the case of both the manna from heaven and the feeding of the multitude, God's sustaining, nourishing gift is made manifest in the context of community. I don't think that this is just because, as some commentators on this text suggest, God prefers to work on a grander scale than just feeding one person. That doesn't sound like God to me. I think it's because of a deep truth about what human flourishing and well being really means. It's not something that happens in isolation. No community can be said to be healthy and whole if even one of its members is suffering or in pain or is oppressed. And no individual can truly be flourishing if their neighbors are in need. Remember that the miraculous gift of manna came with a catch. This divine blessing could not be hoarded. Any manna you gathered beyond what your household needed for the day would rot overnight and become inedible. God's gifts cannot find true expression if they are exploited only for the benefit of the few. So maybe this is at the heart of the devil's first temptation of Jesus, the temptation to understand his own needs and well-being in highly individualistic terms, apart from the needs and well-being of his neighbors. And surely this is a temptation too that we face all the time. As we're enticed relentlessly by the log- logic of demonic idols like capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy and settler colonialism. One of the great myths of our society is of the rugged individual, of the supposed virtue of needing no help and so of offering none either. Too often we understand our happiness and health and well being and success in purely personal, highly individualistic terms. So we elect politicians who promise to cut our taxes, regardless of what that means for our neighbors who depend on the programs those taxes fund. We define our economy as booming without taking into account the number of people who can't afford food or healthcare or shelter. Indeed, we don't need to look any further than the framing of so much of the discourse around the COVID 19 pandemic over the last two years to see how individualistic our sense of well being is. How often have we, all of us, based our behavior on what makes us individually feel safe rather than what serves the health and well being of our community? How often have we said, well, I'm vaccinated, so I'm comfortable going out because even if I get sick, it should be a mild case. Or, well, you know, I'm young, I don't have high risk factors, so I'm not really worried about getting COVID. I know that despite my better angels, I've said those things. I've thought about this purely in terms of myself, not about what I could do to the community. But this mindset belies the same highly individualistic, selfish logic with which the devil tried to tempt Jesus. But, of course, Jesus rebuffed the devil's first temptation and then faced the second. Shown all of the kingdoms and realms of the world, Jesus was given a choice. All of this could be yours, the devil said. All of the authority and glory and power that would come with the dominion over these vast realms, all you have to do is worship me. Prostrate yourself before me, and you will have power no king or emperor could ever have dreamed of. So I don't know if there's any fantasy fans here today, but for me reading this part of the story, I was thinking about a scene in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. If you're not as big of a nerd as me, I will quickly tell you that the main character of the book's Frodo has been called upon to carry and destroy the One Ring, this mystical tool by which the Dark Lord Sauron intends to conquer and subjugate the worlds. So midway through the first book, Frodo is weary and afraid in the face of his daunting task, and he meets Galadriel, a wise and powerful elf, and he offers her the ring. And faced with his offer, she replies, and now at last it comes. You will give me the ring freely. In place of the dark lord, you will set up a queen, and I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night. Fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain. Dreadful as the storm and the lightning. Stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me. And despair. But, in the story, Gladriel resists the temptation. Because she knows that the authority and glory she would wield through the one ring... However, benevolently she might wish to exercise it, would be rooted in the evil, violent, oppressive power that the ring represents, forged as it was with evil, oppressive intent. Gerard Tolkien was a devout Roman Catholic, and he was the one who influenced his friend C.S. Lewis to convert to Christianity. Tolkien's work is much less obviously Christian than C.S. Lewis's Narnia books. But I can't help but wonder if Tolkien had the temptation of Jesus on his mind when he wrote that scene. Like Galadriel, Jesus has every reason to think that he'll be a better, fairer, more just wielder of this power than the evil one from whom the power ostensibly comes. But that's the trick with the kind of power that the devil is offering Jesus here. It's rooted in evil it's conditional on Jesus bowing down and worshiping as an idol, this avatar of greed and despair and violence and oppression. To do so, to accept the authority and glory that the devil offers, would mean believing and affirming that coercive, tyrannical power over can be a source of justice and peace and liberation. And again, We too face this temptation all the time. So often we wanna believe, to paraphrase the words of the iconic black lesbian poet and activist Audre Lorde, that the master's tools can dismantle the master's house. We trick ourselves into thinking that neo-colonial violence can be a tool of freedom and democracy. We imagine that mega billionaires are the ones who are gonna offer us a solution to endemic poverty. I can't tell you the number of times that as a queer person, I've been told that we could end homophobia if gay folks could just act like straight people. And I don't know how to do that, but I think that what they usually mean is that if we would just quietly conform to heteropatriarchal norms of gender and sex and love and family, then straight people would like us. Because that's my aspiration in life. (laughs) But it doesn't work. Any of it. It never does. Because it's rooted in the idolatrous deception that would have us believe that the power of empire can do what only God's grace and love and compassion can do. We cannot worship the idol of empire if our allegiance is to the one who calls us to solidarity and justice. And peace. And so, just as he did before, Jesus withstands this trial. And then he faces his third and final temptation. Again, in this temptation, there's a foreshadowing of events to come. Because, of course, we know that the story will eventually lead to Jesus willingly facing his own death and being raised again. But here the devil does something unexpected. He quotes the Bible. The devil says, God will tell the angels to take care of you. With their hands, they'll support you, that you may never stumble out of stone. And that's from the Psalms. But I think this feature of the story, the devil's use of scripture in this final temptation helps sort of open up exactly what this temptation is. I think one way of reading this story is that the scripture the devil quotes is the temptation itself, or rather the thin, weak, shallow, self-serving interpretation of the scripture is the temptation itself. Just as the devil earlier tempted Jesus to view his own well-being outside the context of communal flourishing, and to view power and liberation outside the context of God's generous, compassionate love. Here, the devil is tempting Jesus to practice his faith outside the context of loving, just, liberating praxis. The devil may quote scripture accurately, but he is asking Jesus to respond to this one proof text scripture in a way that has nothing to do whatsoever with the breadth of the witness of scripture. Nothing to do with a life of joyful righteous, generous faith that scripture calls us to in response to love, God's love and grace. And of course, this too is a temptation that modern Christians are so intimately familiar with. From the prosperity gospel, to Christian nationalism, to queer phobia and misogyny and white supremacy dressed up as piety. There are so many idols, so many of the ideologies of empire that call themselves Christianity. And they passionately quote scripture as they seek to distract us from God's requirement that we do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with the divine. And I know for a fact that many of us here in this room and gathered virtually know firsthand the damage that these distortions of the gospel can do. It's worth noting that Matthew and Mark and Luke all have a version of a story about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Mark doesn't give any details. He just has two verses, and then he's done. But Matthew's account is much fuller, and it looks a lot like the account from Luke that we read today. It includes the same three temptations, but in a slightly different order. Matthew and Luke transpose the second and third temptations compared to one another. If you've read many biblical scholars, this won't surprise you, but they don't agree on why Luke might have chosen to end his version of the story with this particular temptation. Many think it may reflect a particular theological emphasis that Luke was trying to reflect. Perhaps this climactic third temptation is the thematic core that binds the whole story together. And in that light, maybe we can read this story as one about two different ways of practicing faith. Theologian Walter Wink points out that on a superficial level, good Christians might see nothing wrong with Jesus doing any of the things the devil asks of him. I mean, why shouldn't Jesus feed himself just as he would feed the 5,000? And don't Christians confess that Christ is sovereign over all? So Why not take the power and authority and glory over the nations? And isn't the heart of the gospel Jesus' eventual victory over death? So what's the big deal if it comes on a cross or from jumping off a tower? But Wink points out that our calling is not primarily to be good Christians. Our calling is to live into the kingdom of God now. Even as empire tries to exert its authority over us. Our allegiance is neither to be to the flag, nor to the republic for which it stands, nor even to the church, nor even to Christianity. Our allegiance is to the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of universal love and justice and liberation. And our practice of faith, not to mention our daily lives, should be shaped by that allegiance, by that orientation to the reign of God. It's so tempting, it would be so easy, to be an ostensibly good Christian whose faith is not particularly shaped by God's livery and love. It's so tempting, it would be so easy to try and practice our faith in a way that always accommodates empire's claims on our allegiance and on our imagination and on our conscience. It's so tempting to go through the motions of Christianity and show up to church on Sunday and take communion and maybe write a check without ever actually allowing the Holy Spirit to blow us out of our comfort zone and into wild places. Our assumptions just don't work anymore. So as we enter into this season of Lent, perhaps this offers us a rubric for thinking about how we might want to cultivate our spirituality during this time. What are the things in your life that nudge you toward empire? In what areas of your life does the seductive power of nationalism and classism and heteropatriarchy and white supremacy, where do those things have a toehold? How might you fast from that? What might that look like? And on the other hand, What in your life nourishes your calling to live and share universal love? What sustains you as you intentionally practice solidarity and justice and liberation? How could you feast on those things? Whether you choose to fast from injustice and empire or to feast on liberation and love, I pray that this Lenten season nourishes your soul, that it quenches your thirst for justice and righteousness, and brings you closer to the one who is love and to all creation. Blessings on your Lenten journey. Amen. I invite you now to your own reflection on these words.